Welcome to EdTech Adventures. Join us as we explore the role of technology, STEM, and creative play in education. With expert guests, we'll discover how learning is always an adventure. For several years now, eSports has been gaining popularity and momentum across the globe. Imagine the impact eSports could make when it's brought into the classroom and beyond. Today, our guest Marcus Howard will share how he has enabled students, parents, teachers, and business owners to make a positive impact with esports education. Marcus is a lifelong gamer, featured speaker, and international startup advisor. He is the gaming and esports management professor at Johnson C. Smith University and also runs Met Arena with his brother Malcolm, where they help companies use video games to digitally engage their entire communities. He recently published Innovate Gaming and Esports, which explores the business and STEAM career opportunities in the gaming industry. In 2020, the Game Awards selected Marcus as one of 50 professionals for Future Class, a worldwide cohort of leaders building a more inclusive future for the gaming industry. Thanks so much for joining us, Marcus. Thank you. It's an honor to speak with you. Great. Now, I like to start off our interviews with a simple question Could you describe a memorable education experience that you've had? as a student? Great question, Charlotte. This has actually driven my entire career over the last 20 years. When I was in the ninth grade, we had to have the TI-83 plus graphing calculators because we were in magnet school and we were taking trigonometry. So we needed to be able to plot the logarithmic functions, right? Linear graphs. At some point during that year, I don't know who, who showed me this information, but you could actually put video games onto the calculators to turn them into a Game Boy. Now, I never had a Game Boy growing up, but as soon as I learned that I could do that, I had basically Mario and, and Tetris and, and Snake and all these games on there. And at that point, I made the connection that games are made with code and games are apps, just like this app we're using to have this conversation, which was also written in code. In that year, when I was 16 in ninth grade, my parents were actively trying to get me, encourage me to learn to write code, to build websites, web 1.0 websites, I had like a 600 page book, right? And I had no interest in doing that. They, they kept just trying to really encourage me to do that. As soon as I learned that games are apps and apps are made with code, I wanted to build my own game. So I started voluntarily learning Visual Basic exclusively for the purposes of making my own game. So fast forward now, it's been 20 years. I've been writing code professionally for 15 years, been an entrepreneur 10 years, all because of video games encouraging me to learn about STEAM education and entrepreneurship. Marcus, you're really bringing me back. I'm going to date myself, but we had the TI-82 calculator. And I remember that was also one of my aha moments when my friends started passing around like racing games and drawing games on the 82. And I love how it also felt super secret because the teachers weren't aware. (laughs) Yeah. So you felt like you were sneaking something in, but I, I love that story. Now you're basically very involved in the esports industry. So let's kick this off just in case people don't know. What is your definition of esports? For me, esports, and it's easy if you just, you know, break apart the word esports is electronic sports. So everyone understands traditional sports, arenas, jerseys, coaches, managers, training, trophies, tournaments. Typically, traditional sports is a full body engagement, swimming, basketball, football, lacrosse, hockey. Esports, electronic sports is the exact same concept, but typically the engagement happens between your eyes and your hands, either holding a controller or mouse and keyboard. And in fact, 
Studies have shown that if you review the brain activity and the stress of someone competing at a high level in esports, like the international for Dota 2 or, or Call of Duty, it is nearly identical to the brain activity and stress of someone competing at a high level in traditional sports at like a Super Bowl or the NBA Finals. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Now, you got into games instead of web design, I feel ya. Uh, what got you interested in esports and how has your involvement in it evolved over the years? Another excellent question. So my brother and I, about 10 years ago, started trying to make another game. So let me, I didn't finish that story. Our teachers, as you mentioned, didn't know that we could have games on the calculators. So while our teacher was teaching trigonometry, everyone else was just playing video games. Like we were playing video games too. We were also building our, our own separate game. And once she recognized that we were all playing games instead of listening, while we were at lunch, she went by everyone's calculators and deleted the game, deleted the memory, which wipes all the games. No, are you kidding me? That's, not all, that's it, offensive. It, so not only did it delete the games that we were playing in class, but it also deleted our game because it's the same memory space, right, in the RAM. So my brother and I still wanted to continue making video games. We graduated from college. We said, now we both have technical degrees. We still understand we love playing video games and games or apps. Let's try to make a new game. In that process, we built a game design document, had character designs and level designs and gameplay mechanics. We started researching the industry and learned that game discovery has actually been broken, fundamentally broken for decades. If you're not among us or Rocket League or any of these mainstream indie games, no one knows your game exists. So we built a solution called Project MQ, which was a multimedia search engine to help people find amazing games from around the world. In 2017, we recognized that we had grown our social media following to about 122 countries on Twitter and migrated about users in 40 countries to our website. But still, we had a very shallow domestic presence. Most of our users were international. So we said, how can we have a stronger local presence here in our communities? we started doing what we called indie game arcades, where we would basically host arcade of games that we curated from around the world so that parents and teachers and kids could experience different types of games. In doing that, we got invited to host one of these arcades at DreamHack Atlanta, the first year that DreamHack came to the US. They went to five cities in the US, one of them was Atlanta. So we got to produce our arcade at DreamHack Atlanta. And from there, I got to experience DreamHack and esports in person firsthand for the first time. And right there, I knew immediately we had to be in esports in some capacity. So 2017 was our introduction to and pivot away from our in-game search engine and into MetaArena via esports. That's fascinating. And then now you've written a book called Innovate Gaming and Esports. What was the process like writing a book about this topic? Thank you, thank you, Innovate Gaming and Esports. It's about 320 pages. I thought that it was gonna be easy because it's, it's actually a collection of innovation stories. So I only technically wrote two pages out of the book and I featured innovators and thought leaders and innovative companies from around the world in the book because I didn't want it to be just like my perspective. I wanted to celebrate innovation in gaming and esports. I also wanted it to be hyper-inclusive and, and have high representation. So we have people, a variety of ages, races, gender, geography. We actually have thought leaders and innovative companies represented from six continents, six of the seven continents, because apparently no one's playing video games in Antarctica. We're trying to fix that, but there's no one in Antarctica right now at the time we made the book. But it, it, I thought it would be easy. It, it was surprisingly a challenge to try to coordinate and, and organize 
all of these thought leaders. It's about 150 people and stories represented in the book. And that was a ton of work to get the writing pieces from them, their photos, their logos, you know, just to make sure that the story and the piece represented innovation wasn't just like a boring kind of self-promotion piece, but have bold conversations that I feel need to be had in the space. You must have learned so much from those conversations. Were there some key takeaways that you learned from talking to such a wide and diverse group of innovators? It reinforced the concept for me that the gaming industry is global. And, you know, I've been working in the space 10 years and been trying to raise, at least in my last company, Project Q, the, the search engine, I spent seven years trying to raise venture capital. So I was always, you know, pitching my business and I had to have market research in order to do that. So I knew from the numbers perspective, from the graphs, that, that gaming was global. But my personal lived experience was still fairly local in my local community. Working on this book helped me understand that the same passion for video games is global. Video games are practically a universal language, a shared social experience. And so that, that's really the best thing that I learned. And, and beyond that, everything is just really cool. There's a company that's trying to make real life Mario Kart. So like driving a real go-kart, electric go-kart that goes 50 miles an hour, but it can shoot lasers and get speed boosts and you're dodging bombs. That's just one of, of, again, 150 amazing stories. The other thing that's really cool about the book is one of the things I loved as a kid was when my parents took us to the grocery store was to go to the magazine aisle and go get the demo discs from the game magazines. So I actually reproduced that experience in my book I've got 16 games that I curated from around the world. You can see the demos of the games and actually scan these QR codes and play the first level of all the games. There's 16 demos in my book. Oh, that's fun. Did you guys hear that? There's demos in a book. And I think you showed me also a flow chart of related fields of esports that I found fascinating because I feel like people think that esports just impacts the gaming industry, right? We're going to talk about esports and education as well, but your flowchart seems to show that it impacts a wide variety of industry fields. Can you walk through some of those professions that it's impacted? Sure. So a shout out to Nico Bassomes. He is an educator, innovator, consultant in France, again, speaking to the global nature of the industry. And his image, this graph that he created is one of the most popular images in Scholastic esports. Like people are always sharing this image. And I'm honored that he licensed actually not only his infographics, but his insights for a full chapter in the book. But to answer your question, there's everything in here from performance optimization, like high-level player, which is performance management and health management, so health and wellness. There's media that's journalist, editorial, photographer, event project leader. There's broadcast, TV manager, broadcast distribution, stage manager, information technology, so all the IT stuff, including coding, which is where I got my start in the industry. So game development and, and support because the gaming companies are really kind of pushing esports as a marketing arm. Digital, so social media manager, community manager, obviously sales and marketing, administration. Most people don't know that you can actually get a traditional kind of nine to five job in the gaming industry. So you can work as a gaming lawyer or a, a gaming financial accountant. Basically anything that makes the traditional media space work, the entertainment industry work and the traditional sports industry work, combine those together and all of those types of jobs exist in the gaming industry. That unlocks so much potential for career opportunities for people who love games, which is, like you said, a wide and global population. Yeah. <laughs> you also talk about esports when it comes to brand engagement. Let's dive a little deeper into this. How does a brand engage its employees and what is brand engagement in general? 
think brand engagement is both internal and external. So you engage your employees to build a sense of camaraderie, a sense of trust, a sense of community. And you do the same thing with your customers. The idea with your internal community is that you want to keep and retain and engage and, and maximize productivity out of that team. And then externally, obviously, you're trying to uh, maximize engagement, which hopefully translates to sales. I would say today, esports does a terrible job of engaging from a sales perspective for brands and a terrible job engaging employees. You know, I have to just call a spade a spade. I think there's a ton of upside, a ton of un unlocked opportunity where you can leverage esports the same way, you know, there are game nights or, you know, the, the trust fall. That's an old school term. You're familiar with that concept where if someone puts their arms up and they fall back and you expect one of your coworkers to catch you so you don't hit the ground, right? Companies are doing that type of activity in some capacity, but they're not leveraging video games to make it scalable because video games are digital. You can do them on site or remote, right? Because there are 1.3 million games in the industry. Some people can play racing games and some people can play shooting games, but they can all do it together as a company. And I feel yeah, Yeah, that helped us so much during the pandemic. Our mm -hmm. company went 100% remote and we are still 100% remote. And our operations teams, they're amazing at hosting these online games. Like you said, Among Us, we did Among Us, we did code names, we did all of these things. And it was a revelation that we could still connect, even though we were just like in, I think, four or five different time zones sometimes playing these games. So I think there is a lot to be untapped there. But you're thinking that esports is not doing a great job right now. What are some rooms for improvement that you see? I think there are bottlenecks in the space. One of the big issues, I believe, is that it's just too expensive for the average business to get in. These teams are charging between half a million and $5 million a year to basically get like your logo on their jersey and then maybe create a little bit of content. And the average local small medium business can't afford that like not even close right so if if you know the vast majority i want to say it's it's 90 to 99 percent or or so of revenue in the u.s is generated from small and medium businesses and they can't get into esports because they don't have a half a million or five million dollar budget just for esports then you're missing the opportunity to help those brands use esports the same way they're using social media to build a community and, and promote their products and services. So I think that's that's the biggest miss. The other big miss, uh, more specifically, is that when you talk in the esports ecosystem, there's typically only about 15 games that people refer to. And, and I'm sorry, I'm a little bit raspy, I lost my voice. So I don't Actually, I don't know if I mentioned this to you. Recently, we had our third child just two days ago. So my second son was born on Wednesday. And that was- Congrats. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That that was a long night. It was all night until 6.30 in the morning. So my body's still adjusting. Back to the esports. When you think about esports, everyone says basically, if you want to get in esports, you got to do Valorant or Call of Duty or Rocket League or Siege or, you know, any of these Fortnite and nothing against those games, those 15 games that we kind of think is the top 15 games in the ecosystem. But again, there's over 1.3 million games globally across all platforms, mobile and VR and console and PC. And if you limit the games just to those 15, A, you're kind of typecasting to a specific genre. And then B, unfortunately, out of those 15 games, over 60% of them are either mature rated or are games with guns. And even though there's very little, if any, research that, that links violence in games to violence in real life, actually, most of the research says the opposite. Violence in games reduces violence in real life. The perception is that violence in games creates violence in real life. So if you're only focused on these, these violent, mature-rated games, how can any family-focused brand, 
right? Or child-focused brand engage in esports as engagement if you're only offering them Call of Duty, which is mature rated. So those are the two biggest misses there, I believe. I think it also calls to this concept of inclusion, like you said. You know, for me, I didn't understand that games could be beyond a like a shooter game, and that's mm-hmm. totally not my cup of tea. I'm I'm a platformer platformer girl yeah. <laughs> first and foremost, and a creative girl, and so having maybe other types of games in esports might also be more inclusive to get more people involved in this industry too, right? Exactly. I don't see a reason why you, you couldn't have an Among Us tournament, right? Even FaZe Clan is a perfect example. FaZe Clan literally created their own exhibition type tournament for Among Us, which is technically an indie game. Most people don't know Among Us was actually created in 2018 and it went virtually unplayed for two years. Hence the game discovery problem I mentioned to you earlier. And then in the year 2020, the year everyone, you know, the pandemic hit, everybody was at home, that game exploded from practically no one playing it to almost a quarter million people around the world playing it. So that speaks to the nature, the inclusion, like you said. It also is helpful that that game is mobile. When you think about esports traditionally, at least here in the US, only a handful of organizations are even touching mobile. But if you leverage mobile, you don't have to spend thousands of dollars on a high-end PC to get someone engaged, they can literally play with the existing device in their pocket. And I feel like a lot of these opportunities for growth are also in the field of education too. So let's combine all of these topics that we were just talking about and explore how can we leverage the benefits of brand engagement and esports in the world of education? We're starting to see it happen at some early levels now. And obviously, uh, you know, Code Combat is doing that. Shout out to you all for leveraging your AI league to get people competitively writing code, which is great. Another more popular example is the Minecraft ecosystem, right? They have their hour of code. You can actually learn the code inside of Minecraft. You can create circuit boards using, I think it's Redstone. And Minecraft coincidentally has its own separate tournaments. They have the pieces already to combine the two. You could leverage Minecraft to teach via tournaments. Let's say like if the goal is to teach people to write code and build circuits, why don't you have a circuit building esports tournament, right? Go collect all of the different ores and build the largest computer or the most complex computer. It, it's my philosophy that while esports is very narrowly defined around, you know, again, first person shooters, I think anything with a timer or a score, or even if you make up your own rules, can be its own esports tournament. So you can take something like building a PC virtually in Minecraft and then set your definition of winning and success. And then once everyone has that criteria, get everyone to play together and now you have an eSport. We had the same feeling because our games naturally at the end of our courses had these little arenas. And then we didn't think about how, wait a second, this arena, if we just built a ranking system and brackets, could become an esports like field. And so it took some time, obviously, to build that ranking system, et cetera, but it just took off. Like kids loved competing and thinking about, oh, how can I program my own AI to compete against other kids from across the world? And so we learned that, hey, you can design games, but there's something a little different when you transform it into an esports experience. Mm-hmm. What are kids taking away from an esports experience that's sort of different than what they're taking away from just playing a game to learn specific content? Many of the same values that you can learn in traditional sports, right? So like communication and patience and strategy and collaboration. You know, all of those things that may be absent in a single player experience and certainly aren't encouraged 
in a classroom experience because typically that's seen as a distraction, right? But now you're encouraging group activity where everyone depends on the other person's success. And even in some one-on-one situations with like fighting games, I think that adds value as well because what I have seen kind of the negative side of the gaming community is the toxicity. In multiplayer games, it's easier to take more credit for the success and take less credit for a failure, right? If you're working on a team, you could blame someone who does something almost completely unrelated as the reason why you might've lost the match. And my colleague, Sebastian Burden, who we co-host the podcast, says, and he grew up in the fighting game community. He says, one of the great things about the fighting game community is that you're really just playing against yourself. Like if you lose a match because you lost against some other person, it's because you as an individual didn't do well enough with your strategy or inputting the buttons or uh, analyzing and adjusting to your opponent's strategy. So it's really, you're you're playing against an opponent, but you're also playing against yourself and your ability to train as a person. We've noticed that too, where the kids almost become addicted at trying to master or level up their own like ranking. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it's like you said, it just becomes a competition within yourself. Like, wait, I can do better. I can do better. (laughs) That's great. And then for you, where is there room for growth when it comes to esports and education? You, you've shared some examples where it's really worked, but where can we grow when it comes to esports and education? This is a really bold idea, but I think that we should fundamentally reimagine education and workforce development from the gaming and esports perspective, because you probably, you all, your team has already seen the stats and probably parents and teachers are seeing this. The ones who are paying attention is that, you know, 97% of kids 12 to 17 are playing video games. So why not meet them where they are and leverage something they have an innate interest in? And then that way they stay more engaged and it's more meaningful and and hopefully more memorable to them. So I'd love to see like, you know, maybe because Fortnite has guns in it, it might not be the best example, but like leveraging like math and physics to like explain the bullet drop when you're using like a long range weapon, right? Any number of things, Minecraft, obviously, again, with the coding example, because of the vast variety of games and genres, you can literally find a game to match almost any academic theme. In fact, there are many games that even do that explicitly. There's a game called Kim Caper, C-H-E-M-C-A-P-E-R. My brother and I discovered this with our last company, the Multimedia Search Engine. It teaches you chemistry. Like you competitively combine elements to build little, I'm going to call them Digimon for lack of a better term, but like you you build little, little avatars or monsters by combining elements. And so it makes it fun, right? And engaging in a way that, that is typically stale and difficult to remember. That reminds me of flight navigation and aviation, because I've been seeing a lot of those simulators in museums, like science museums. I can only imagine how much they can expose kids to physics, the physics of flight, the physics of how that works. So yeah, there's so much potential if we just explore every subject area and go, how could we turn that into a game? I could see that. (laughs) It's such an easy question. How can we turn that into a game? Or how can we help explain this and maybe not even remove all of the curriculum, but like, how do you incorporate the gaming aspect to reinforce what you just taught on pen and paper or the digital or physical whiteboard? Yeah, I think that might feel less intimidating than say completely replace your right. curriculum, but just to consider these games at roots reinforcement so that kids can live and breathe the concept, not just read words off of a piece of paper, right? And actually, I have two of the games out of the 16 in my chapter of demos are academic games or not academic games, but support academia. These two games are made by the same developer, Fishing Cactus. They're in Belgium. One's called Epistory and the other is called Nanotail. And you basically play the game by writing words. 
Like it teaches you words and you have like three monsters in front of you, almost like Mario teaches typing or, or typing of the dead. If you remember like the house of the dead series, right? Yeah. Where you needed to like, you know, type the words to get the zombies or, or whatever, jump on the blocks if you're Mario, like learning lots of real important everyday use words by playing this video game. Right. So that's language arts right there. I've also seen like creative storytelling at our company. We're doing a Dungeons and Dragons game virtually, but like I've seen how much creative writing is involved in just Dungeons and Dragons. So just imagine bringing that to, to the world of education too. Now you've created this company called Meta Arena. Uh, How does your company impact education with the world of gaming and esports? Can you share some examples? Sure. So the book is the first piece of it, right? We wanted to kind of codify this philosophy of making it easy for everyone to leverage video games to improve their personal lives, their family lives, their work, their business, their school experience. So this book is is kind of the first piece of that. And then in our platform, we have a tournament platform. We'll be actually embedding a three or a fully interactive 2D version of the book into the platform. The goal is to take someone from playing in a tournament or spectating a tournament to immediately learning about the career opportunities within the same platform. And in some cases, even rewarding them for that learning experience. So we basically kind of close the loop, right, on the gap between entertainment and education so that you can leverage it in a school environment. Very cool. And then now you're working for a project called Vessel. Could you describe in more detail what a Vessel experience could look like in the future? Sure. We're still early stage as a full entity, but Vessel has been around for three years, basically building some of the the world's leading esports and VR installations. Our team has worked in the entertainment and attraction industry for decades with like Walt Disney World and SeaWorld and Universal Studios. And so what we're envisioning, what we're working on now building is kind of the Disney World for gaming-focused STEAM education and workforce development. So like the esports piece is what brings you into the door and it's incorporated throughout the experience. The flight simulator is a perfect example, right? One of our advisors is one of the co-founders of Boeing. So imagine as a very specific example, you walk into one of our venues and you see a flight simulator and you just use it as a regular attendee because it's fun. But on the second floor, now you've got some educational content around becoming certified to get an entry-level job in the Boeing ecosystem, right? Whether that's training as an air traffic controller, which is more advanced, or whatever skills that Boeing needs for its entry-level employees, we want to help middle school and high school students get that experience and that knowledge while they're in grade school, not to bypass college, but to say, if you graduated and you want to start your career, you're able to do that. And then imagine on the weekends, you now go back into that flight simulator where there is a flight simulator tournament where leveraging what you learned, whoever has the fastest time or goes to the most rings may earn like $150 credit towards their next airplane flight. Wow. So you're basically walking them through that full journey from just experiencing what it could be like to seeing how that could connect to a career to then saying, all right, let's see if you can beat out like some other competitors and earn even more incentive to dive deeper into the career. Right. Right. So reimagining again, both education, but also brand engagement, right? Like Boeing doesn't have that experience now as a brand as a whole, but specifically not in education. They don't have that. They also don't have that pipeline development. So we believe that can apply to a number of industries around the country, around the world, and all of our venues will be networked. So not only would you be able to compete locally in your community, but compete across time zones as, as you played across time zones yourself. Are there other industries that you've been flirting with besides Boeing as another example? 
Right now we're talking to the military, nothing confirmed yet, but, but they recognize the same problem that basically all high-tech industries recognize is that, and I think the World Economic Forum posted this report, I want to say by 2030, it's projected that there will be 85 million unfilled high-tech jobs because technology is advancing and because these companies aren't upskilling their employees fast enough, which means if that happens by 2030, it will generate $8.5 trillion of lost revenue globally. So it's it's basically every industry, especially every high-tech industry, and, and basically every industry, every company today is a technology company because like this conversation we're having is only through technology, only possible because of technology. So across the board, you know, small, medium, and large companies, big name companies like Amazon, everybody needs this support to make sure that they are filling the jobs that they need to be successful in the future. Gotcha. And talking about the future, we flirted with it a little bit, but let's think even beyond how could esports impact the future of ed tech? Again, I had that bold statement, so I'll double down on that. It's bizarre to me that there's still such a high opposition to gaming and classes, given that that's like the one activity that unifies all students. So I, I would love to see that further enhance the technology uh, opportunity, right? Whether that's playing from home and learning from home or even into the metaverse. And I get tired of seeing that phrase. It's, it's I'm almost nauseous of seeing it and hearing it now. Imagine doing a biology class or a microbiology, like a zoology class and having the course and then leveraging metaverse to go like experience some first person action adventure or platformer where you're reinforcing those concepts so that the student, instead of kind of playing a video game is now fully immersed in that educational experience. And I think Minecraft is probably closest to it, or at least has the closest opportunity, but I'd love to see that again across like chemistry and sales and marketing and, and all of these both kind of high tech, but also soft skill professional environments. And hopefully we can close that very, very scary gap that you were talking about 85 million. My goodness. Yes. <laughs> That's crazy. Also, what advice would you give to someone who is interested in trying out esports in their school or classroom to help, you know, kickstart this evolution? I think that you can start small. Naturally, most organizations, especially schools, are probably overwhelmed and, and maybe intimidated by the idea of bringing gaming to school, especially if they spent decades saying no video games in class. And, and there's probably this misconception that you have to have you know, $5,000 PCs, because that's what you see in the Call of Duty tournaments. The reality is, for example, you talk about inclusion, nearly 50%, 48% of gamers in the U.S. are women. And women over-index on mobile games. Just like the number one consumer for console gaming is the Black community. And in the Hispanic community, the Latinx community, Latino, Latina community, video games are their number one recreation tool or their toy. So by leveraging kind of console gaming and mobile gaming, you might not even have to make investments into $5,000 PCs. You can leverage either your existing equipment and or free games or bring in your own gaming consoles. The teachers can or the, the students could on a kind of a round robin basis. You can get started basically for free, leveraging the existing equipment. And then the, the other big thing is, is not trying to shoehorn or pigeonhole the types of games that are experienced by a given school. It's easy to see that list of top 15 games and say, it's got to be one of these. But when the reality is, again, that the reason that there is 180, in some cases, $300 billion gaming industry and 3 billion gamers worldwide is there are 1.3 million games across all those platforms. So there's literally something for everyone. 
if you typecast what you're offering, you're going to pigeonhole the amount of or reduce and limit the amount of people who can be engaged. Likewise, if you only think about the varsity experience, like the best gamers in the school, you ignore the rest of the 97% of kids who are playing video games. So what I would encourage is to send out an email and say, hey, we want to finally take video games seriously, both from the recreational component and also from education. A, do you play video games? Not are you a gamer? Because actually 85% of people who play mobile games don't self-identify as a gamer. So do you play video games? What's your favorite game and what platform do you use? You ask those three questions, leverage the responses to find out who is self-identified and then engage them with the game that they want to play if you can. I love this data-driven mindset of letting your community of students direct what game to use in your esports because I agree if you just pick a random game and you don't even know if your students are into it you're not going to be successful from the get-go and then it can sort of feel alone if you feel like oh I'm the only one trying to make this difference in the school are there any strategies of sort of rallying other school community members to help you implement an esports tournament or esports experience at a school or classroom I would start with a library and like the multimedia teachers if, if they're available in a given school, because at the very least, you know, if you have a library in your school or a multimedia center, that's probably where like the most expensive PCs are and, and where you could house some gaming consoles. Right. I, I, I joke that that libraries were the first and are the first true metaverse. Because before you had technology, you could like read a book and become someone else in another world. Like leverage that. What what video games can you bring into the classroom or into the library that complements some of the books you have or, or some of your themes of the month? Yeah, I like that idea too. And librarians are amazing. So yeah. they would be a really great teammate in this. Uh, and then pivoting to people who are in the game industry, what advice would you give someone who is interested in developing esports and gaming experiences for education? I would say reach out to Shell Games. Shameless plug for Shell Games are up in Pennsylvania. They're, I think they're the number one or the largest full service game development studio for both like full service game development and educational games. So reach out to them. I'd also reach out to Games for Change. It's a global nonprofit. They're headquartered in North America and, and they talk about games for education. So those are two great reference points to learn what's already working. Like there's no need and, and there's no point in trying to reinvent the wheel and, and make those same mistakes. So leverage, what is this? The quote is a smart person learns from their own mistakes, but a wise person learns from the mistakes of others. <laughs> so leverage, leverage those successes and failures to help inform a more sustainable, inclusive, scalable strategy. It's also an amazing community too. I've, I've gone to the Games for Change conference and the fact that there's even a whole section just focused on education and it's a bunch of people just nerding out who love games and want to impact education in a positive way. It, it's just such a wonderful feeling to hang out with folks like that in general. I, I would also say, I think it's the Department of Education is now making a dedicated, like concerted effort to, you know, educational games. So that's that's a federally funded organization that you can go to wherever the website is and see what they're doing and how you can tap into. Maybe there's some funding there. If not, at least some best practices and other helpful information. And you can always reach out to me and Marcus too, since we've also been in this esports land of education and games. And I sure have learned a lot just through that process of seeing how it can transform a kid's learning experience. Yeah, I think that most teachers would be pleasantly surprised how receptive the students are to the opportunity to play video games in class. I'm surprised they love it, right? Yeah. <laughs>
Well, well, thank you so much for being part of our interview, Marcus. I certainly learned a lot from our conversation and I hope you out there have as well. Thank you. Look forward to a future conversation with you. Thank you all for tuning in. (laughs) Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to EdTech Adventures. Please subscribe to catch more of our episodes and leave a review to support the show. For more resources and info, visit us at codecombat.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Charlotte Chang. We'll see you on our next learning adventure.